invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. We'll read our passage this morning and then pray together. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we come this morning... To you, we are thankful for the worship corporately that we've enjoyed already this morning in your presence. Thank you for song, giving, and prayer, and fellowship. And now we ask for your spirit to work in our midst as we sit under the word of God. We hear it preached. Would you help me in the preaching, and would you help all of us in the listening? For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Things are not always what they seem, are they? These are familiar words, familiar expression. The words actually come to us from a first century poet named Phaedrus. And I think he was on to something, wasn't he? Things are definitely not always what they seem. Looks can be deceiving. And in many ways, these words describe our passage this morning. In Matthew 28, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, presenting himself, as it were, to his people, Israel, as their Messiah and King. The crowds seem to be quite on board at this prospect, and they welcome him with enthusiasm, with praise as the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of David. And one could surmise by reading the passage that uh, this was perhaps the greatest of days, both for Jesus and for the crowd But things are not always what they seem. And this is the great irony of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the response of the masses. Jesus is, in fact, who the crowd proclaims him to be. He is Messiah, the promised son of David. But in the end, despite their initial enthusiasm, despite the welcome of the masses, he's not going to be the kind of Messiah that they were wanting and hoping for. And I think without the eyes to see, the spiritual eyes, and without the ears to hear, 
one can surely be confused and miss the significance of this defining moment. From the outside looking in, nothing here is really as it first seems. Though in reality, everything is just as Jesus had determined and just as the scriptures had predicted. And that's ultimately what matters. Our passage concludes this morning in verse 10 with the crowds asking this question. Who is this? Who is this man? That is the greatest question that anyone can ask. It's the question that Matthew, for all of these chapters, has been driving his readers to the point of asking, who is this man, this Jesus? And ultimately, that's the pressing question for each of us. Who do we consider Jesus to be? Do we see and embrace him as the type of king he truly is? A savior, the Lord Almighty with all authority who came to die for sinners, who calls on them to believe on him and him alone for salvation. Do we see and embrace Jesus in this way? Or like the crowds, do we miss the significance? Do we miss who Christ is out of spiritual blindness and perhaps hardness of heart? So many of his generation missed it and missed it on this day. And we don't want to be among that group. Now, in terms of context and setting, this is a massively significant moment in Jesus' life and ministry. His entrance into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the final week of his life. We typically refer to it as the Passion Week. That's a familiar term, I'm sure. I remember growing up not knowing what that term meant, nor a host of other terms that we used in church. But passion comes from the Latin word to suffer. And because this final week of Jesus' life culminates in his sufferings on the cross, it's not difficult to see how the term passion week came to be applied. And I think it's a fitting description. There's another term we use for this day and this passage, in fact, and that's the traditional terminology, the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. Uh, it's triumphal because Jesus is the king. And surrounding his entry into Jerusalem was this sea of celebration and enthusiasm fitting for a Messiah, for a king, even if it was short-lived on the part of the people. And so we call this week, the, or this event, the triumphal entry, kicking off the Passion Week, the week of Jesus' sufferings leading to the cross. This is the beginning of the end, we could say, as Jesus enters the city. We want to look in the first few verses of the king's preparation for this event, namely Jesus' orchestration of all the deals, uh, details related to the entrance into Jerusalem. Before he enters the city, we, we learn from verses 1 through 3 that there were things that needed to be in place, preparations he needed to make. And before we look at them specifically, let's just remind ourselves that, in fact, Jesus has been preparing for this moment for all of his life and for all of his ministry. If we go back to chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew, we read this, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and rise again. 
We find also in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, this description Jesus says, you, (coughs) excuse me, he says in verse 17, see we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So with laser focus, Jesus has had his face set toward the holy city now for some time. And he doesn't leave us in the dark as to why. Chapter 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, says Jesus, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we we know where Jesus is going, to Jerusalem, and in fact he's arrived, and we know why he is here. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to the cross. We know the where and we know the why. Jesus' disciples, in fact, have been traveling on foot from Galilee in the north. You can see it there on the slide with the red line. They've been moving southward along the eastern side of the Sea of the Jordan River, typical route. And they, along with thousands of other pilgrims, have been traveling from all over to come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover feast. From Galilee in the north, it's a good 75, 80-mile journey. Jesus crosses over the Jordan River here at Jericho and lands in the city where, according to chapter 20, as we read, he heals two blind men who cried out to him, O son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus and his disciples and all the crowd of traveling pilgrims make their way for another 16 miles up a 3,000-foot descent to the city of Jerusalem. And that brings us to chapter 21, verse 1, where we read, And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples. It tells us he's very near Jerusalem. In fact, he was probably within a couple miles. Uh, Bethany is about two miles from the city on the southeastern slope. We don't know where Bethphage was, but it was right in that area. If you're standing at the temple looking eastward, you see the Kidron Valley, and here is the Mount of Olives, and the city's on the back side. This is where Jesus has landed as a staging point for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And now, is the, now the time has come for him to begin to make preparations to enter the city. We read in verse 2 that he sent these two disciples on a mission. He said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now the question of why Jesus wanted or needed a donkey, uh, particularly the young colt, colt, we will get to in just a moment. But for now, let's just look at what Jesus instructs the two disciples to do. Uh, We're not told which two disciples, by the way, but he he tells two of them to to go into the village and to retrieve a donkey and her colt, a young male donkey, probably under one year old. Mark Mark in his gospel tells us that the colt had never been ridden, so it was unbroken. 
Now, the assignment that he gives to the disciples, these two, it's not complicated. He says, go and get the donkey and her colt. But it, it does raise a few questions, and one of the prominent ones is, how did Jesus know that the colt would be there and things could unfold as they did? And the gospel writers, frankly, here, Matthew, as well as the others, they don't really provide all the details we would like to know, so we, we don't know. Um, but really, there are two options, either Jesus in his divine uh, omniscience, knew and in his divine authority uh, caused things to be what they were so he's exercising in this view his divine um, attribute of omniscience he's the god man and he knows the other option is is a more normal natural means that is at some point kind of off screen here off text he just made inquiry and prior arrangements in the village or sent someone to do that so in other words he communicated with this owner and had everything ready to go. Uh, Either option is is possible, and it really doesn't affect uh, the ultimate truth in the passage. Um, But what is important to see and grasp is this, is to see Jesus' utter concern for the details and his control of the dynamics of of the entire situation. He's in complete sovereign control, as he will be throughout the entire Passion Week. We're told uh, that the disciples then in verse 6 went and did as Jesus had directed them and uh, apparently everything went off without a hitch. So that's what happened. But it leads us to to ask, why did it happen? Why did it need to unfold this way? Why did Jesus have the disciples, interestingly enough, go through the hassle of retrieving the colt down in the village when all they had to do was just walk into Jerusalem? Another mile and a half or two miles. They've been walking for days all the way from up north in Galilee. Why not just continue on foot into Jerusalem? Why the sudden need for the donkey? And for that, we move to verses four and five, where we see the king fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is going to ensure that the scriptures are fulfilled. Matthew doesn't leave any guessing here as to why he tells us directly in verse 4 this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet so the reason why jesus made careful detailed arrangements to secure this colt is because he was fulfilling old testament messianic prophecies prophecies that would not fall to the ground idly for the word of god cannot be broken in luke chapter 18 In Luke's account, he says this, Jesus, taking the twelve, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Do you see that? Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, including the retrieval of a farm animal to ride on. In verse 5, Matthew uh, quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. This is a prophetic word given some 500 years earlier. God, through the prophet Zechariah, prophesied that Israel's king would be presented to the people and come mounted on a donkey, more specifically on a young colt. Matthew understands what's happening, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes, Actually, this is a convergence and a fulfillment of two Old Testament texts. Matthew combines them. In Isaiah 62, 11, it's a typo there, I apologize. No, it's been fixed, thank you. 
Isaiah 62, 11 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Combine then with Zechariah 9, 9, where the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king's coming to you. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humbled, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you can see there uh, in the underlined portions of those two passages, um, are the portions that Matthew combines and understands as being fulfilled by Jesus as he mounts the foal and enters into the city. You might also notice that Matthew leaves out portions of each verse as he combines for this fulfillment. Uh, he doesn't quote the statements relative to salvation. And it may be because just that context was understood and he was focusing on, on zeroing in on the, the donkey. Uh, but it, there could also be a deeper meaning and reason for that but because perhaps, as we know, sadly, Jerusalem would actually experience God's judgment before it tasted salvation because of their rejection of Messiah. Their salvation would come a future day as they turned and looked to the provided Messiah, but that salvation must be first purchased by a suffering servant the servant of Isaiah chapter 53, and then received by a generation who would look to him in faith as their Messiah. So in any case, Matthew is drawing these two passages together and he's making the point of verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. We should ask this question, uh, why a donkey? More specifically, the colt, a young donkey, the foal. That's clearly the connection Matthew's making there in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I think one of the key words in that verse is the word humble. That is why it had to be a colt, a young beast of burden. Because Jesus would come to his people in humility. Uh, The donkey perhaps was a symbol of peace or service. But I think really the point is just simply this, it communicated humility. Think of the other option, to come in mounted on a a war horse. Now Jesus didn't come on a war horse and he didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom and overthrow Rome. He came in meekness and in humility as a savior, first to establish a spiritual kingdom by giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' humble entrance into Jerusalem is, as some have called it, a parable being acted out. In other words, he was demonstrating to them quite visually the nat- his own nature and the nature of his kingdom and the nature of his mission. He's on a beast of burden in all humility, a stinky farm animal, coming to the city to carry out a saving mission. I think it's good if we just ask ourselves, is this the kind of savior and king that we see that we need for ourselves? A humble savior? A suffering savior? One who came to conquer our greatest enemy and deal with our greatest problem, namely sin? One whose path to glory came through suffering and through the cross? 
It's the question that faces each person at all times. It faces us today just as it faced the crowd back then. Who is this? Who is this person? What has he come for? We have seen the preparations and the first three verses. We've seen this fulfillment of prophecy. We want to turn our attention now to verses 6 through 9 where we see Jesus receiving honor and praise. It says in verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed. And then they brought the colt, uh, the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks as he sat on them. And verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. The the disciples, after retrieving the colt, they come and they they put their cloaks on the, the garments, on the donkeys, probably as some kind of makeshift saddle. And uh, Jesus here mounts the, the animal. We're told in Mark that he actually sat on the colt, not the mother. Um, Mark doesn't even mention the mother. So Jesus sat on this young colt. He finally begins to make his way to the city. As he does so, the crowd, the masses, uh, perhaps following the example of the disciples, they begin to throw their garments down as well on the path as the donkey walks over them. And uh, we ask, well, why are they doing that? Is this just like some ancient gesture of being kind? Uh, No, it was full of symbolism. And it was essentially an ancient way of rolling out the red carpet for someone of importance. You might do this for a king or a political leader. Way back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 9, they actually do this for the newly crowned king Jehu. And in the flurry of the moment, they take off their garments and they lay them on the steps that he's about to walk on. And they, they blow their trumpets and proclaim that Jehu is king. And so there's precedent for this. Verse 8, we see that they, they put down not just their garments or their outer cloak there, but others cut uh, branches from the trees and laid them on the road. Again, a means of displaying honor to the king. And John's gospel tells us specifically what we might imagine in a Middle Eastern context and climate. These were palm branches from palm trees. And so this is why we call the the Sunday prior to Easter, prior to Resurrection Sunday, we call it what? Palm Sunday. There's another term that I never quite knew growing up as a kid. But Palm Sunday is for this reason right here, the the cutting down of the palm branches and honoring honoring Christ this way. Uh, Palm trees, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, sort of like our bald eagle here in America. uh, You can find palm branches on ancient Jewish coins, for example, and even etched in synagogues. Um, We could say that the palm branches then represented both honor to the king, that's a someone of importance, as well as just a spirit and an expression of Jewish nationalism. Um, put that together, we could say hopes are, messianic hopes are quite high in this moment. This is all about king and country. And the crowd is shouting and expressing their nationalistic hope and their redemptive hope as they look to the promised Messiah. They're rolling out the red carpet. And it appears that for now, uh, the, the, the time has come for the long-awaited Messiah. If you were a first century Jew in that 
time and in that moment, this would have been what you lived for, what you hoped for. This would have been what your ancestors lived and died waiting for and hoping for and praying for, the coming of the deliverer, the coming of God's salvation, the visitation of God to save and to deliver through his king, through his Messiah. The day of the Lord, when right unrighteousness would be judged and salvation would be, would be brought to God's people. So their displays of honor in verses 7 and 8 turn into outright praise in verses 8 and 9. We read that they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're actually quoting there both with the term Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 18, which was one of the hallel or praise psalms that were sung by the Jews for various occasions, particularly at Passover. So they're, they're borrowing language from, from psalms and, and messianic hopes and applying them to Jesus. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save, we pray. It was a petition to God, but it also had morphed into more of just an exclamation of praise and praise and worship, and they attribute that to Jesus. They also call him the son of David. We know, of course, that that is a title of Messiah, of kingship. From 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had made promises that a, a son, a descendant of King David, would eventually be Israel's forever king. God's people, this fed their hopes that at some point the son of David would come and assume the throne and put off all evil and righteousness would reign and salvation would come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they cry. Again, directly from Psalm 118. We shouldn't, uh, despite all of these good signs, we shouldn't lose the sad irony of this. The irony is that everything that the crowd says about Jesus is, actually, is true. It is true. He's the son of David, Messiah, and God had provided Messiah. And their actions to honor him are right, and their words are correct and true. He is the Messiah. And notice at no point does Jesus try to correct them or stop them. Uh, That in itself is something that infuriates the religious leaders as Luke gives his account. He says that the Pharisees actually break in and they they come to Jesus and they ask him, they tell him to stop having others say this about him. And, And Jesus in those familiar words declares to them in Luke 19, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. In other words, God will be praised, period. He alone deserves all honor and worship and praise. And if we don't open our hearts and our mouths to give it, then all of creation will do it in our stead, even down to the rocks. God can cause the rocks to cry out praise to him. Many in the crowd were no doubt genuine worshipers. They were. They were heartfelt worshipers that day. Uh, Many or most of the crowd, in fact, were pilgrims traveling down from the north and in other places. Uh, Many of them would have heard and seen Jesus as he ministered. And uh, we don't have numbers, we don't have figures, but many of them would have been true followers of the Lord Jesus, no doubt. Love and loyalty for him. But sadly, as we'll see as the week plays out, many were caught up in the moment 
and caught up in the messianic hopes and the fervor of the moment, the excitement. And they were worshiping and declaring praise to a Messiah, a deliverer of their own imagination, someone they expected Jesus to be and wanted him to be. But he didn't match up to their expectations. They proclaimed him as king, but in reality it was their kind of king. Not truly who he was. One writer says this, For a short time, the people would acknowledge Jesus' true identity as the sovereign son of David, but they would fail to identify him also as the sacrificial son of Abraham. They knew he had come to restore the kingdom, but they missed the fact that he was also here to redeem his people. They anticipated the sovereignty, but overlooked the sacrifice. The writer goes on to say that Jesus would not exercise the rule without the redemption. The point of that is this, that Jesus was not their kind of king for most. He came with a different agenda than to confront Rome and politically liberate uh, Israel. His purpose was far greater and far more eternally significant. All we need to do is look at his own words back in chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus said this, even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. There's an important application, I think, here for us. We, we cannot simply take Jesus on our own terms. And we can't create a savior in our own making and liking. We just can't turn him into whatever we want him to be and then worship that accordingly. All we're doing at that point is giving allegiance to and worship of a God or a savior of our own making. And we see that played out in so many different ways, don't we, in our culture. For some, Jesus is the one who can meet your financial obligations or even go well beyond that and make you wealthy. For others, Jesus is the one who uh, helps them cope with just all the bad things in this world and the negativity all around us. Maybe he's kind of the therapeutic savior in that sense, a, a life coach given from heaven. For others, Jesus is the one that they'll serve so long as he basically makes their life problem-free. For others still, Jesus is a guaranteed ticket to heaven. You, you make the transaction, you do what you have to do, you get Jesus, and then you feel good about that, and you feel good about feeling good about that, and you feel good about feeling secure, but then you pretty much just go live life the way you want. It doesn't matter, you have your ticket, you have Jesus. And we could multiply examples of that, right? Saviors of our own making, gods of our own making. We have things the way we want to be, and we worship and serve that God, that Savior. It causes all of us to pause and ask, what is our Jesus like? What is your Jesus like? The Christ of the Bible is the Son of the living God, both fully God and fully man. He lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, fulfilling all righteousness. He had no sin of his own. And yet of his own free will and in submission to the Father, he laid down his life. He went to the cross 
as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. He, he gave his life as a substitute for those who know that they stand guilty before a holy God. Those who know they need mercy. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, did not remain in the grave, but he rose again three days later. And we will celebrate that next week. He rose again three days later. He conquered sin and death and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns right now from heaven. And for this reason, Scripture tells us that every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will confess that this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is Lord to the glory of God as each person stands to give an account of their life, to experience the forgiveness of sin and peace with God, God calls on all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin, and to turn to Christ, to humble yourself, to reach out in faith and lay hold of Jesus in His merits, in His righteousness, to transfer trust from yourself and your own righteousness to Him, there we find forgiveness. There we find mercy. There we find God's grace to unworthy sinners. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And sadly, many in our day miss that. They just miss it. They don't look to Jesus that way. Just as those in Jesus' day missed it as well, even here on this day in the triumphal entry and as the week plays out. Sadly, it's missed. We, we want to look at verses 10 and 11 as we say a few words about the king's entrance and identity. It says in verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Emotions, as we've said, are running high. They really are, and Jesus finally enters the city. Matthew says the whole city stirred up. That kind of strikes us as, a, at least to me anyway, as a bit of an understatement. The word's actually quite strong in the original language. It means that there was just massive commotion, ton of energy in this moment. The city is absolutely frenzied up and stirred. Jesus has come, and in the midst of it, though, Jesus isn't celebrating. In fact, as we learn from Luke 19, Jesus is quite emotional. Do you remember what it says in Luke as Jesus makes his way to the city? What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He knows the city will turn its back on the God they claim to know and love and serve. They will reject the Messiah and Savior that God is giving to them. And as a result, they will be judged and condemned for their rejection of Jesus Christ, Messiah. Jesus says in Luke 19, as he's making his way and with tears in his eyes, would that you, even you, had known this day, speaking of the city, the people, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You wouldn't have it. 
If only you'd opened your eyes. They were blind to Jesus' true identity and mission. And that's the sad, sad irony of the story. Verse 10, that people ask, who is, who is this? And some maybe didn't know Jesus. I mean, they literally didn't know who he was. Maybe heard of him, but they didn't know. Um, particularly since much of Jesus' ministry was in the north, and now he's down in the capital. So that's possible. Some had traveled from great distances, making their pilgrimage. Maybe they hadn't seen Jesus, known his ministry over the past three years. Uh, but more likely, the question, who is this, means something more like, who is this Jesus exactly? Who is he? Who is this one who would cause such a stir and commotion and cause such messianic excitement? Who, who is he really? And some from the crowd respond, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, that's a true statement, isn't it? That's true. Jesus was a prophet. In fact, he was more than a prophet. He was the prophet, the, the prophet that was prophesied of way back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, one who would come in the likeness of Moses, the great prophet. But that's really not the full story of who Jesus is, is it? He was more than just a prophet from Nazareth. And Matthew, in his gospel, has been spending 20 chapters proving to us, showing us that Jesus is indeed more than a prophet, more than just a man, more than just a good teacher. He is the God-man. And he's the fulfillment of all that was promised for Israel. Jesus is the Son of God who possessed all divine authority in heaven and on earth. And despite entering the city humbly on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, as we've seen, Despite that veiling of authority, that veiling of power, Jesus is going to go on and actually exercise and prove that divine authority as things go on. He's going to use his authority to clear the temple in verses 12 and 13, drive out the money changers. He's going to use his authority to heal the lame and the blind, as we see in verses 14 and 15, to do wonderful things in their midst. He's going to use his authority to receive worship and praise that's deserving from the children in verses 15 and 16. As, as the chapter goes on and subsequent chapters, the, the authorities, the religious leaders are going to confront Jesus. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus will counter that and ultimately shut them down, showing his authority, proving his authority time after time after time. He is the God-man with all divine glory and authority. But the question is now here at this juncture, what is Jesus going to do with that authority? That's his rightfully. What will he do with it, that divine power and right? Well, we get a glimpse of it here in our passage, a very clear glimpse. He doesn't ride in on a war horse, though he could have. He doesn't broadcast his power and authority, though he could have. He doesn't wield a sword, though he could have done so. And he didn't bring an army with him. He brought followers, disciples. And in humility, as he's going to prove on Friday of this Passion Week, in all humility, Jesus will use his authority, not for personal gain, but to give his life for others, to lay it 
down, to give his life in order to redeem lost sinners. Listen to these glorious words as recorded in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then he says this, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. And just a few verses prior to that, he he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus does with his authority. He lays it down and he'll go to the cross. This is what he came to Jerusalem to do. His eyes were on the cross as he was on that foal, on that beast of burden. His eyes were on the cross as he rode into the city. It was a triumphal entry indeed, just not the kind of triumph that the masses ultimately wanted. It wasn't a political triumph. Indeed, Jesus accomplished something far more important, a spiritual triumph over sin and death. The Bible tells us, though, that Jesus will one day return physically, bodily to this earth. And unlike his first coming, marked by humility, with his glory veiled in flesh, suffering and death, unlike that, In this future day of his coming, on that day, he will come in the fullness of power, in glory, and in might. He will come to judge sin, and he will come to redeem his own. The lion and the lamb. And no one on that day is going to say that things aren't what they appear to be. Things aren't what they seem. No, no, everyone will know. Everyone will know, and ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Would God give us the spiritual eyes to see Christ for who he is and to savor him as such? Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel at who he is and how he fulfilled all righteousness and all that was spoken of him from the prophets of old. And we marvel at his humility and at his mission to lay down his life for sinners. My prayer, O God, is that no one hearing my voice today would be like one of the mass, one in the mass crowd of Jerusalem who maybe had some outward praise and outward thoughts of welcoming this Messiah, but ultimately would turn because he wasn't their kind of king. No, I pray that every heart today would see and turn to Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God who came for sinner's sake, to die, to rise again, that we might have life and life abundantly, that we might be reconciled to a holy God, that we might have peace and hope for eternity. I pray that we would see Jesus today. May your Holy Spirit apply your word to our hearts, we pray in his name. Amen.